there are moments in our nation's history that are studied, at least they were studied by school children, moments that are the subject of paintings, photographs, books, and movies. In ninth grade, we had a, a mini course on this, the great moments in American history as illustrated by paintings and movies and books. And so we came down to six great events, the first of which was the pilgrims in the Mayflower landing at P Plymouth Rock in December of 1620. All sorts of paintings had been done. And then there was the beginning of the Civil War in 1861 at Fort Sumter. Many of you have even made that trip over there. The third was the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, enabling intercontinental travel. The fourth was Jesse Owens winning his four gold medals at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, humiliating Adolf Hitler in his own capital. The fifth was NASA landing a man on the moon in 1969. But the most iconic moment for me was the painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. If you don't know the story, in 1776, George Washington launched a sneak attack against the British forces who had settled in for the winter in Trenton, New Jersey. Among Washington's troops, morale was low, desertions were high, supplies were running out, the colonists looked like the war was almost lost. And that night, late Christmas night, a few hundred American soldiers loaded up under the leadership of George Washington in 50-foot cargo boats as they were going to try to cross the Delaware River. As soon as they put their boats in, a torrential rainstorm began. If things could not get worse, it turned into sleet. But the British on the other side were caught completely off guard. The, the surprised British soldiers surrendered immediately, and the Americans sustained no casualties. Stories of this bold, overwhelming American victory quickly encouraged the Revolutionary Army, and it renewed the colonists' hopes. But I will tell you, that river crossing pales in significance to the one that we're going to examine tonight. First of all, in the number of how many people crossed, when you look at Washington crossing the Delaware, as I said, a few hundred people crossing that night. But what we're going to see today, tonight, is a crossing where millions, millions of Israelites cross the river. The second thing is Washington's crossing is ordinary providence. You, you see that. There's nothing miraculous about it at all. But the river crossing we're going to look at tonight is a stupendous miracle. In fact, it rivals the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, as being the most stupendous of all miracles in the Old Testament. I hope you have your Bible open to Joshua chapter 3. And as we open Joshua 3, the people of God are poised on the east bank of the Jordan River, which is at flood stage, we're told. And they're looking across at their promised possession. They can see just across the Jordan River, and they can see into the land of Canaan. By the way, this scene, this scene from Joshua 3 of Israel lined up along the banks of the Jordan, looking westward towards Canaan. It was this scene that inspired Samuel Stinnett, the Calvinistic pastor and hymn writer, to pin in 1787 these words. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a watchful eye. 
and you know the rest of the hymn. He's also the writer of Majestic Sweetness Sits in Throne. But look at Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. The whole nation is waiting. They haven't yet been told how they will cross over into Canaan. Like all believers in every age, they must walk by faith and they must wait. They've only been told, if you look back to Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, that they will cross over the Jordan. And no doubt a lot of people are staring at the Jordan because we're told repeatedly it's at high stage, at flood stage. And they're thinking, how are we going to do this? We possess no boats. And so this was where Joshua, earlier in Joshua chapter 1, had commanded the officers of the people saying, pass through the camp and command the people saying, prepare provisions for yourselves within three days. You will cross over this Jordan to go and to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Now, I want to stop for just a moment and give us some reminders. It's been a while since I've done this. When we approach a serious study of an Old Testament historical narrative, and that's what this is, we need to keep in mind the following interpretive principles. Anytime you're looking at an Old Testament narrative, you should keep in mind these New Testament directives on how to study the Old Testament. There are three basic texts that tell you how to do that. And why I want to say this is not so much for our help even tonight, but for your help when you're doing your own private reading and you're reading Old Testament narratives. These three texts should be written inside the front of your Bible. They should guide your reading when you study any Old Testament narrative. The first is Romans 15.4. I hope you'll look at it. Very brief principle. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 15.4, Whatever things were written before, what would that be? The Old Testament. Paul says, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so, first hermeneutical principle. Old Testament was written for us, our learning, and those of us who are in the New Covenant. And Paul tells us as well that we, by our reading of any Old Testament narrative passage, should get hope. If your study of the Old Testament doesn't give you hope, you're doing it wrong. Second text that tells you how to study the Old Testament narrative. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, largely made up of Gentiles. And I want you to notice what he does. He calls a bunch of Gentiles and he says, Brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. Now, Paul just did something amazing there. He says, when you're reading the Old Testament, don't view these as people who are different ethnically, and so therefore you're separated by time and you're separated by ethnicity. Look what Paul says to the Corinthian church, largely Gentiles. He calls the Old Testament saints our fathers, and he says, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples. And then Paul says it again in verse 11. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. And so what we understand from this principle 
is all of these Old Testament narratives, we are to draw exemplary value. Are we looking to see Christ there, to see him typified? Sure. But we also are trying to learn exemplary behaviors, what to do and not to do. And then the third text that should always inform our study of the Old Testament. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You probably have it memorized. Paul is speaking of the Old Testament. There was no New Testament. Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so Paul says, this Old Testament narrative we're about to look at, you should expect to be reproved, corrected, and trained in righteousness. With that as our background, let's ask the Holy Spirit for help now. The sovereign Lord, source of all light, by your word, through the active ministry of the Holy Spirit, give light to our souls. Pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds might be opened. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at Joshua 3, and I want you to notice, first of all, the buildup for the day. Moms and dads, do you remember that anticipation you felt when you were a kid as soon as Thanksgiving dinner was off the table? For the next four weeks, you were chomping at the bit. Maybe that was just at our house because trees would appear and boxes would appear under the the tree. And my brother and sister and I, every time we walked by, we would shake the boxes and try to figure out. And there may have been one of my siblings, it wasn't me, who when mom and dad weren't around, actually unwrapped a present, saw it, and rewrapped it back under the tree. But they got caught because they were a sloppy wrapper. So the moral of the story is if you're going to do that, you better be a good wrapper. Well, the days seemed to drag along. Each day felt like it was 72 hours long between Thanksgiving and Christmas. The way you had to wait and the anticipation that built up. Well, think about Israel. They had been waiting to come into the promised land for 500 years. Ever since God gave Abraham the promise in Genesis 15 and said, I will bring your descendants into the land. For centuries now, Israel has been dreaming about possessing and settling in and rejoicing in the land of promise. For the last generation, the last 40 years, they'd fantasized about what? lay beyond the borders of the Jordan River, and they'd fretted over their fears of giants in the land. The problem, of course, with most of our expectations is they're usually anticlimactic. Think about that Christmas present that you anticipated so much. You'd showed mom and dad the Sears catalog. I'm sorry, if you're over 30, you have no idea what I'm just referring to. But you showed mom and dad the Sears catalog and said, Mom and dad, if you will just get me that Tonka truck, I will be so happy I will never want another toy in my life. But you remember what happened. Oh, the expectations had been high. But after opening the truck and wreaking havoc for a few hours on the living room, you set it down in the closet and you said, well, that was nice, and the truck went to the back of the closet. But this day, this day when Israel enters the land would be a day that exceeded everyone's expectations. The time had arrived. Today is the day Israel is going to cross into the land. What do you do on such a day, and how do you prepare? Look carefully at verse 5 in Joshua chapter 3. Joshua said to the people, sanctify yourselves. Other translations say consecrate yourselves. 
for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Every Israelite, by the way, knew exactly what these words meant. They go back a generation. If you think back to Exodus 19, when everybody who's standing there with Joshua, when their parents, who by the way had all died in the wilderness, when their parents were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and they ringed the base of Mount Sinai, and the Lord told Israel then to sanctify themselves, consecrate themselves in preparation for receiving the Ten Commandments. The spectacle and drama of the scene a generation before at Mount Sinai can't be pictured even by a Cecil B. DeMille epic. DeMille, the great filmmaker who tried to picture this, could never have enough extras or special effects to do it justice. Because when the Lord came down then on Sinai, the mountain is shaking, smoke is pouring from the top of the mountain, and then Jehovah finally speaks and the nation of Israel heard the audible voice of God. But to prepare for that encounter, a a generation before God told Israel to consecrate themselves. That meant everyone bathed, everyone changed their clothes. In the ancient Near East, water was a luxury that was hardly ever used for personal hygiene. You and I have a hard time relating because we're used to comfortable laundry and bathing facilities, but these were unknown in that time, especially for two to five million people at the same time. But the reason why the Lord tells Israel here in Joshua 3 verse 5 and why he told Israel before in Exodus 19 to consecrate themselves, sanctify themselves, to, to, to wash, is that washing, changing your clothes symbolized a new beginning with the Lord. Because sin is pictured as a defilement in Scripture, we must be cleansed before we can effectively follow God. This happens all the time through the Old Testament. In Genesis 35, when Jacob made a new beginning with the Lord and returned to Bethel, he and his household washed themselves and changed their garments. In 2 Samuel 12, after King David confessed his egregious sin, he bathed and changed his clothes and worshiped the Lord. And you're thinking, very nice, Carl, washing, consecrating, what does this have to do with me? Look at 2 Corinthians 6. You and I are commanded to do the exact same thing. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, the same commands to Israel to wash, to be cleansed, to be consecrated for God's service. Notice how that same picture is used now in the New Covenant. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14, Paul says, Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And you are the temple of the living God. God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what is unclean and I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, here it comes, exact same language. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so the same commandments that were given to Israel to cleanse, consecrate, sanctify themselves are given to us in the new covenant. And so look back to our text, Joshua 3, 5 was a summons for Israel to cleanse themselves and dedicate themselves to the Lord. It was a call to prepare by prayer and meditation 
to focus on the promises of God, to recall God's gracious and mighty intervention for them in the past, and to bring their hearts into a right state so that in faith they might behold the great work Jehovah was going to do for them, that they might be in a suitable condition. One of the things that you should notice in Joshua 3 is we prepare for the crossing. At this point, you're still thinking, how are they going to get across? If you hadn't heard Pastor King a moment ago, you're thinking, rivers at flood stage, two to five million, people are going to drown. I don't think a lot of these people know how to swim. This is going to be dangerous. The Lord's going to lose a lot of people on this day. Before we get to that, I want you to notice the most recurrent term and concept in Joshua 3. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's mentioned 17 times in Joshua 3 and 4. You don't have to be a really smooth interpreter to think, I think this might be a thematic idea. I think this might be a major concept. The Ark of the Covenant is mentioned 17 times in Joshua 3 and 4. The Lord refuses to let us lose sight of it. The ark, we're told, is to go before the nation of Israel. And you're thinking, are you crazy? How are you going to step into that river? The ark will be swept downstream in five seconds. Now, notice what Israel is told. Look at verse 4, that the ark is to be 2,000 cubits. That's 1,000 yards in front of the nation of Israel. Ten football field lengths. Why? We're going to find out. So the entire nation could see the ark. If the nation surrounded the ark and tried to walk across the Jordan, there'd be all kinds of people on every side who couldn't see the ark. But the reason why, it's to be kept a thousand yards in front of everyone so everyone could see it. Now, what's so special and important about the ark? I want to make these reminders to a generation raised on Indiana Jones who think the ark was magic. It wasn't. But what I do want to point out is four or five truths about the ark that should impact us. The first and most important is the ark symbolized the presence of God. Instructions were given for building the ark in Exodus 25, the first chapter in the Bible where the ark is mentioned. It was the ark which was the foremost symbol of the Lord's dwelling among his people. And it was upon this that the significance of everything else depended. By the way, the word ark, as it's used here, is Hebrew just for box. And so just so you won't get a wrong idea about the ark, first of all, the ark is four foot long, two foot wide, two foot deep, relatively small. The materials of the ark, again, told in Exodus 25. It was a box made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. The next thing you should know is it had a carrying mechanism. You couldn't simply walk up to the ark, even though it was relatively small, like a laundry basket, and pick it up. There's a system of poles and rings, rings on the side, poles through it. Why? To show the holiness of God. To touch the ark meant death, and that happened several times in the Old Testament. The shocking story, for example, of Uzzah's death shows how holy the ark was and not to trifle with the holy things of God. Everything associated with God is holy. His name, his day, his word, his worship. And we must be careful to treat holy things with reverence and dignity. Even the carrying poles that slipped through the rings in the side of the ark were too made of acacia wood covered in gold. These long poles would have rested on the shoulders of the men carrying it. So the ark was elevated high into the air when it was being transported. The ark was not only moved when the camp of Israel 
was transferred from one site to another, but also in solemn processions and in times of war. Exodus 25 tells us the poles were kept in the rings on the side of it at all times to signify the readiness of the Lord to move with his people. When the ark was moved, it was covered and remained unseen. Only when the temple was constructed did the ark of the covenant find a settled home. Now the contents of the ark, to think about what's going to go across the river this day, the tablets of the law, as written by the finger of God. Hebrews 9 tells us that later there would be a pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded. So those things went inside the ark. But what's most fascinating about the ark is the lid of the ark, the top, better known as the mercy seat, made of solid gold. On the top of the lid were two cherubim facing downward with outstretched wings. They're mentioned as guardians of the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. And the cherubim's faces at either end of the ark were downward looking, showing their humility before the Lord, since he, according to the psalmist, he is enthroned between the cherubim. The mercy seat was the exact same dimension as the, as the ark. It covered the box completely, showing that the full requirements of the law engraved on the stone tablets therein were completely covered by atonement. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood of a substitutionary spotless lamb on the mercy seat. And when God looked down at his law, he didn't see the shattered commandments inside the ark. He saw the blood of the lamb. The fulfillment of this type was when Christ died for all the sins of his people and took away the sin by the sacrifice of himself. Because it was understood that the ark represented the person of God, the presence of his God with his people. Whenever the ark set out, there was a verbal formula that was spoken. It's taken from Numbers 10. So every time the ark was moved, this was stated by the high priest. Rise up, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. And when the ark came to rest, it was said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. The ark as well symbolized God's holiness. Within that box, as we said, were the tablets of the law written with the finger of God. The law was the written expression of the moral character of God. So the ark was a constant reminder that God was holy. and The breaking of his law was an affront to his nature. The ark symbolized God's justice. Inside was the law which the people of Israel had broken. Above, between the, the wings of the cherubim, was the presence of the holy God. As God looked down, he saw his broken law. And so the ark was a constant reminder of the need for the judge of all the earth to do right. Judgment must follow sin. If this were all the ark pictured, it would be a terrifying box. But as I said a moment ago, the ark most wisely symbolized God's grace. The ark preached the gospel. So we said the covering of the ark was called the mercy seat. It was there that the high priest sprinkled the blood of the lamb the animal that was killed in their place. Their sins merited death. And then the blood was carried into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled on the mercy seat between the broken law of God and the cherubim. In obedience to the command given in Joshua 3, verse 8, look carefully at what the priests will do on that day. They're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They have to walk into the Jordan and stand there. 
They remain in the riverbed and they cannot move on until the entire nation, two to five million strong, walk through and reach the opposite bank. The priests have to stand there motionless with the ark up on their shoulder on the carrying poles. And that gives the people confidence. They know that as long as that ark is standing there, the water won't harm them. But what I really want you to see tonight is the issue of miraculous power. You can't be at this church more than a week or two without hearing from us concerning the sovereignty of God. Because this theme, the sovereignty of God, rolls through scriptures like a tide. We learn on every page that our God's not a a pocket-sized deity. The Jordan River, now as Israel is massed there at river's edge, is full and rushing. Look at verse 15. We're told it's overflowing its banks. Israel's been camped here for at least three days. They've been staring at the river. And you know what kids have been asking their dads as they've been standing there looking. And there's Jericho. There's Canaan, the promised land just across the river. You know what kids are saying. Dad, I know we're going to cross the river, but I can't swim. This water's way over our head. Or we're going to drown. And what the children, no doubt, would have been asking is, how's God going to solve this? How can he make a way? The parents who are standing there vividly remembering how their parents were the apostate generation, so they don't want to say to their children, I guess we won't be able to cross. I guess we'll have to turn back and wander for another 40 years. But this generation, they knew that Jehovah had a track record. Because just 40 years ago, when Israel came up to an obstacle like this, the Red Sea with the Egyptian armies hot on their heels, the Lord had simply parted the Red Sea, made the water stand up in walls, and Israel marched through on dry land between walls of water. Now what you don't see in our text is Israel comes up to the, the eastern border of the promised land. You don't see the Lord wringing his hands saying, oh, what have I done? I didn't plan for this. What am I going to do now? I'm going to lose a lot of my people in the the river. You don't hear any such thing. Now, one of the things that you're meant to notice, this this chapter is a literary masterpiece. God can tell a story. And what you notice in verses 8 through 16 is the literary tension that gets more and more tense. And what the Lord is saying to his people is, trust me, step in the river. Step out in faith. And then the God of all the earth, look at verse 16, piles up the water. How high does the pile grow? High as the Sears Tower? No, probably much higher. And then another miracle. Jehovah, not only does he make the water stand up in walls, he dries up the riverbed so that we're told in verse 17, they go through on dry ground. Now, the interesting thing is, look at where we're told the water dries up from. Israel's going to go across, right across from Jericho. But according to verse 16, the Lord dries the river up, Jordan, 20 miles upstream and makes the water stand up there. And then what's left for Israel to go across on, you'd think, well, it's going to be muddy it's been, there's, it's been full of water for years, decades, who knows how long. Do you know how long it takes for a river to dry up that's been at flood stage? Israelite feet didn't even get muddy. Look at verse 17. They go across on dry ground. God's provision didn't offer merely 
an inconvenient but doable route of escape, whereas people would have to wade or float or slosh out of danger. No, he intervenes miraculously with two miracles. He dries up the river 20 miles upstream into a high wall of water. And then he dries out the ground so they don't even get mud on their sandals as they walk across. This is such an astounding work of power that David writes a psalm about it after he reads Joshua 3. Now, by this point, by the time David's going to put pen to paper and write a psalm, hundreds of years have gone by. And David wants to write about how God acted on behalf of his great-great-great-great-grandfathers. And David doesn't fall into the error of saying, well, that didn't happen to me, so I have nothing to praise God for, like American hyper-individualistic folks would do. Look at what David writes. Look at Psalm 66. And I want you to see how David describes this. This is a call for praise. Psalm 66. The psalmist begins, Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Come and see the works of God. He's awesome in his doing toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. Do you know what David's talking about? There's only one thing he could be talking about. Our text, Joshua 3. And so David writes a praise psalm, a historical psalm of praise, hundreds of years after the fact. And David's thesis is this, our God is so great, so worthy of praise, that he can part an overflowing flooded river. And this psalm is not just for those two to five million people who had passed through hundreds of years before, but David says, no, it's for my generation, and it is for our generation that they're after to sing. And then the psalmist does it again. Look at Psalm 114. Again, a historical psalm talking about this specific miracle. This time, the psalmist engages in humor, sanctified literary humor, to inanimate bodies of water. Listen to what the psalmist says, Psalm 114. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan, he's talking about our narrative, Jordan turned back. The mountains skip like rams, the little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? And O Jordan, that you turned back. The psalmist is almost being comedic and saying, why, you, the Jordan River, when the Lord spoke, you ran away quickly. You ran 20 miles upstream and stood up in a heap. And so he says, what ails you that you turned back? One other example from the Psalms. By the way, the best interpreter of these miracles is the songs that Israel sang about it. Look at Psalm 135. We sing this sometimes. Psalm 135 speaks of God's sovereignty over creation. And by the way, for those of you who are getting woke and buying into things like climate change theories and you're saying, well, Carl, I know 40 years ago in your day, 
when, you, when Christians were worried then, they thought that the world would come to an end by nuclear bombing, mutually assured destruction. But now I think that the world will come to an end because of climate change or whatever. Because God is not able to stop that. God's not able to intervene. Look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 135. He says in verse 5, I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas, and in all deep places. Israel is to reason this way. Listen to why the Lord does what he does as they stand there at Jordan. And he sends the river upstream 20 miles, standing it up in a heap until Israel can go through. Drying out the riverbed of the Jordan so they can walk through on dry land. Israel is to reason this way. If God can divide and displace the waters, if he can make the water stand up and back up, He can surely displace the Canaanites, all seven nations of them who are waiting. Because just as the seas and the rivers rise and fall at his command, nations rise and fall at his command. You see, my friends, we don't worship a a hand-wringing God. He's not frustrating. He doesn't come up to an obstacle like the Red Sea or the Jordan River and say, Oh, no, what am I going to do? He's not frustrated. He does what he pleases. If a flooded river is in his way, he parts it. You know who else was watching this display of God's miracle working power? Here's the fortified, double-walled city of Jericho, just across the Jordan River. The men are lined up along the walls, and they're watching. They see it. They see the miracle. They see Israel lined up to come across the river, and all of a sudden, the river goes backwards. does something that nobody ever saw before or will ever see again. And it stands up in a heap. And they begin to tremble and quake. It was deepening the dread they already felt. Now, let me tell you what they were already feeling. Look just back across the page at Joshua 2, where Rahab told the Israelite spies in Joshua 2, verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all of the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And so already the people of Jericho were shaking in their boots and now they see not the parting of the Red Sea, they move a parting and the movement of the Jordan River and here comes Israel. Two to five million strong trooping across the dry riverbed. And they're thinking, we are done for. We should put up the white flag now. How do you apply this word? Let me make several applications to us tonight. I want you to notice the necessity for spiritual leaders to go before the people in faith. In verse 13, look carefully. In verse 13, it's the priests. The spiritual leaders who are to step into the water first, they're called to lead, and so they do lead. The raging waters don't stop and back up until the priests actually set foot in it. The priests have to be bold in faith, just as our elders and deacons, our spiritual leaders, must be those of bold faith, men who believe and act on the promises of God. Godly leaders cannot be cowardly men who only know how to walk by sight and not by faith. 
What you see, these men who put their feet into the Jordan River are bold men, believing men, brave and courageous men. That's what you want for a spiritual leader. A second application. When are you the safest? Are you the safest when you're behind the fortified walls of Jacob with double walls, with archers every five feet apart? Or are you safer when you're plunging into the raging waters of the swollen Jordan River? The answer, of course, is you're safest when you're obeying God's commands. And what we'll find out very shortly in the next few weeks, God helping us, is that the residents of Jericho aren't the least bit safe. Their walls and armaments do them no good. The only safe place is to obey the living God and his commands. Another application you and I should see. God will move heaven and earth, and that's not figurative speech, that's literal speech. God will move heaven and earth to keep his promises. He's promised to give Israel the land, and so he delivers. He said this land would be theirs, and so he'll reverse the created order to keep his promises. Do you struggle to believe our God's promises? Then banish unbelief and cynicism. He is faithful. If he has made a promise, he will do anything to keep it for you. But I have to speak to unbelievers here tonight. This passage speaks to you. And it should strike terror in your heart. For this is the God, the God we see in Joshua 3. This is the God that you will soon face as the righteous judge. And he'll pour out his wrath upon unbelieving and unrepentant enemies. You only have one hope. Run to Christ, the one typified by the ark. Run to the mercy seat and plead Christ's sprinkled blood. Remind God of his promises. Lord, you said, the one who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Otherwise, you face the horrifying prospect of an eternity under the heavy hand of God's wrath. A final application. Our impossibility is only God's opportunity. Did you hear that? Our impossibility is only God's opportunity. The Lord is seldom early but never late with his provision. The Lord waits for our circumstances to seem critical before he appears on our behalf. Here was Israel ready to enter Canaan, and the Jordan River was a class 5 torrent, a season which to carnal reasoning seemed to be the most unfavorable of all. But this afforded God the perfect occasion to display his might and his glory. It doesn't matter if the river is wide or narrow, deep or shallow. It's all alike to an omnipotent God. I don't know what your circumstances and conditions are tonight. But don't give way to despair over conditions and circumstances beyond your ability because nothing is beyond God's ability. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would strengthen our faith by this word. Remind us that your great power is not diminished one bit since the day that you made walls of water stand up. So impress upon our minds and hearts to what lengths you'll go to keep your promises.